0: Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer.
1: Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. This is actually the 24th episode of the podcast podcast. Timeshare flies when you're having fun and recording podcasts. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast, and I assume that you are. If so, please make sure you do these three things for me. Number one, share the podcast with your friends and your colleagues. Help spread the word about the Chemical Show. Number two, make sure you're following the Chemical Show on your favorite podcast player or on YouTube. YouTube has actually gotten very popular as a podcasting medium. And three, leave a review or comment on any one of those same podcast players etc anyway so that's my lead in this week's guest is John Stekla of Parent Resources you heard from John a couple months ago actually in episode 11 of the podcast and i've invited John back to talk about current events in the chemical industry so john welcome to the chemical show
2: great victoria thanks for having me back i'm very flattered to get the second invitation
1: Absolutely. I love talking with you and getting your insights and in depth knowledge of what you see in the market and the customers and suppliers that you talk to. So delighted to have you here. Well, great. Chemical producers and markets are still feeling the effects of Hurricane Ida, which just hit Louisiana on August 29th, causing significant damages to homes, businesses, and knocking out power to over a million customers, including many chemical producers. And now, as we record this episode, Tropical Storm Nicholas, which flirted briefly with being a Category 1 hurricane, just temporarily, and then quickly diminished back down to a tropical storm, but it came aground on the Texas coast overnight, it's causing significant rain and wind event for the region, and also a power event for the region, again, for greater Houston area and Louisiana, and of course, all the people and the plants that are in its path. At this moment, we're still awaiting the true impact of what it means economically, what it means to businesses, people, et cetera. But what we do know is that it's a disruption to the already volatile chemical market and a market that's been pretty significantly disrupted over the past 18 months. So what do you see going on in the market? Maybe let's just start a little bit pre-Hurricane Ida. What was the market like if we go back to the middle of August before Ida struck? And then we'll talk a little bit about what you see now.
2: Sure, Victoria. It's interesting. When we first spoke a couple of months ago, there were significant dislocations, let's just call it that way, between a number of the markets and even geographically, say, between eastern Louisiana and Texas. There was a significant spread on the ethylene price between Louisiana and Texas. The butadiene market was tight. The propylene market was tight. And while there was some grudging improvement is the only way I could put it towards settling some of those issues. Ida has kind of ripped the Band-Aid and the scab off and has re-exposed those wounds and is having a very significant effect and impact on the overall chemical markets. And if you bear with me for a second, just to let the folks know that if you just want to look at the amount of U.S. capacity impacted or actually shut down due to Ida, it ranges from a low of, say, about 14% for benzene production production to 44% of styrene, caustic soda and chlorine, about 30%, PVC, about 41%, about 16% of ethylene, about the same for PGP, in the 20s for butadiene and ethylene oxide, and in the low teens for polyethylene. So it has a significant impact on um, on a number of the chemical markets. And so one of the things that we've seen is the spread on the ethylene price between the Choctaw hub, which is eastern Louisiana, near the Mississippi River, and the hubs in Texas, it's hit 14 cents a pound, which is extraordinary. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's quite a spread.
2: Normally, in, in normal times, which we haven't seen in a while, your differential will be much closer to the cost of the pipeline production or, about, or pipeline transportation cost of about two to three cents. And so that's where you normally see Louisiana a little bit higher. But to see this sort of level is truly an extraordinary situation.
1: That's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit more? What impact has Hurricane Ida had on the petrochemical industry?
2: Very good question. Typically, when a big storm comes in, when a hurricane comes in, and it'll have basically three impacts on a chemical producer. The first, it could have impacts on the feedstocks coming in, whether it be truck rail or even pipeline. Secondly, it could be damage to the actual production units. And then thirdly, it can be generally called, it, let's say, logistics. It can be road issues, rail issues, power issues affecting your production. And one of the things that we're seeing is one of the greatest impacts is the people impact, that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that everyone that works at a chemical plant, they have a family. And The hurricanes aren't indiscriminate. They affect everybody. And so one of the big issues that you'll see is that people are having trouble getting workers to be able to come back in, even to assess the damage. I mean, Shell Norco still is just now getting enough power back and people in to assess what their damage situation is. Wow. And it's just not just the plant operators and the maintenance guys. It's your truck drivers, right? sight of that, it's the rail line mechanics and stuff. So it affects as I said, indiscriminately, all of the people having an impact to it, there's just no way around those types of issues. Yeah,
1: And labor was already stressed in a lot of places, right? I mean, so if I think about, you mentioned trucking, the labor market for trucking has been stressed. I think the labor markets across the U.S. have been stressed and across the globe, really. And so this is an additional significant stressor on the people and the employees that would be supporting the industry in that area.
2: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if recall, I think it was about two years ago that they changed the rules for truck drivers, the amount of hours that they could be on the road. And the net impact was to take about 15% of the trucking capacity out of the market, just due to the limitation of people's hours. And so that made trucking very tight. And really, over the last couple of months, truckers have been able to pick and choose the routes that they want. They might want to go to a nice city, but they could choose not to. It would, and they could choose to do that as opposed to going someplace else. So trucking yeah, I've heard that. Issue. It is much more of an issue right now in between equipment being flooded, drivers taking care of their families. It is a mess. We were trying to arrange some new trucking and they said, well, we can get to this a week and a half ago. They said, well, the earliest we can see you is or take care of your loads were September 16th. So they were already it fully booked for a couple of weeks out. And so that creates a lot
1: of issues. That's challenging. And it's all interrelated, right? You need all pieces of the puzzle. So you mentioned kind of these three areas. So feedstock, production, and logistics. Can you touch on anything in those areas? I mean, what's going on in the world of feedstocks?
2: That's a, <laughs> the hip bone's connected to the leg bone and the leg bones connected to the foot bone. There is a lot of interconnection. The one area I kind of wanted to highlight in today's discussion is actually the natural gas space that when Ida came in, we shut down about 70 to 80 percent of the Gulf of Mexico oil and gas production. And so normally you would expect to see a boost in prices. And we have seen domestic prices go from about 380 a couple of weeks ago to about five and a quarter now. And so we have seen a significant cost increase. And you would assume that that would be productions, the supply, of the supply and demand balance. But it's really not. Our production or our consumption is actually about flat right now, say in June's latest data compared to last year. But what has happened is that we're exporting a whole lot more natural gas. That in the first six months of this year, we exported about 10% of our natural gas production, which is about a 40% increase over last year. And you say, well...
1: Yeah, what's driving that?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. So what's driving that? Well, we're looking at the spot prices. For example, the Korean-Japan marker... We've seen their price go from about five bucks a year ago to eighteen dollars a million BTU right now. In Europe, it's even more dramatic. Is that they went from about three eighty a million BTU to over twenty one dollars, so almost six x the price of natural gas right now. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. A couple of reasons why in Europe they had inventory levels are lower than where they normally are this time of the year. So they're trying to build their inventories. They had a cold winter last year so they consumed more they're not getting as much gas from russia which is a shock and so there is a lot of demand to build up their inventories and so they're looking at bringing in and power prices have been very up the renewables the dedication to renewables is challenging to them and so i don't think they're seeing quite the amount of output kind of what texas saw back in february they're not seeing the amount of output from the renewables as they had expected And this is one of the things I think that the audience needs to just pay attention to going forward for the balance of this year into next year. Right now, the U.S. natural gas inventories are about 17% where they were a year ago. And they're running about 7% below the five-year average. So our inventory levels are really low. So normally, this time of the year, we're injecting a lot of natural gas into our wells to build up for the winter demand. Well, right now we're only injecting about sixty percent of the volume needed to rebuild inventories just to the five year average. And so we're not injecting enough to be able to build our inventories up. So what does that mean? It means we're not gonna have as much in inventory. We have cold snaps, other issues. We could see some very significant increases in natural gas over the next nine months. I wouldn't be shocked to see a double price to get over ten bucks in a main BTU. Right.
1: And then, as we talk about natural gas, it has the knock on effect on power. It's on the ethane to feed the crackers and I guess other feedstocks.
2: No, that's exactly right. When you look at the uh, ethane price, right, which is our primary feedstock for our ethylene production, it's increased from, say, 17, 18 cents a gallon to about 38 cents a gallon right now. And every $0.10 gallon move in ethane price increases your ethylene cash cost by a little over $0.04 a pound. So all of a sudden, we're seeing ethylene cash costs increase $0.08 over the past few months, right? And it's strictly due to natural gas because ethane is only two uses for it. You burn it as fuel or you can run it through a cracker and make ethylene out of it. And so the natural gas price actually sets the floor and so as the floor of natural gas comes up, it's just pushing the ethane price along with it. When you look at sort of the profitability, if you want to call out of ethane, it's what we call the extraction value, which is basically the sales price over its alternate or BTU burn value. And it's still low single digits. And so it's not like ethanes become tight, but, you know, the price is going up, so there's really no margin in the ethane business right now. So we'll see that add-on effect in the way it goes. And so as your ethylene cash costs go up, that determines your export capability to to be successful.
1: Absolutely. Although I would assume even with these rising costs, U.S. is still at the front end of the cash cost curve. Is that true?
2: That is true. Canada, as well as the Middle East, will have significantly lower prices. That's because Their ethane and their feedstocks are not set by free market dynamics like they are in the U.S. That adds an element of risk, so to speak, in the U.S. because it's set by supply and demand. Canada's set by formula. Middle East is set by formula. Just very low, very competitive levels, let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Well, I guess we'll stay tuned and we'll talk more about this, John, in a couple months. You'll tell us how your crystal ball turned out on this.
2: Well, I don't know. It's a little... uh, murky right now but
1: uh, uh, mine has been murky for a long time yeah that's what i tell well, people. one
2: of the things though is that a lot of these impacts in natural gas are sort of paralleling what happened in propylene last year and that there's sort of an impending train wreck that we could see the inventories going down production was going down and it all came to a head back in february when the freeze hit texas and louisiana and we saw prices spike to unbelievable levels so It certainly bears watching what goes on in natural gas, because it affects all of us at home as well as business-wise.
1: Yeah, interesting. Watch this space, huh? That's kind of where we're at. We'll be right back. Support for this episode comes from ChemDirect. ChemDirect is an all-in-one commerce platform to buy and sell chemicals online. Shop online to get products in days instead of weeks at a highly competitive price. If you're a supplier, you can launch a fully resourced digital channel for free. Now, we all know that digital is getting more and more important in chemicals, and that's something we discuss regularly on The Chemical Show. ChemDirect is here to help make it happen. Head on over to chemdirect.com to check them out and use the code CHEMSHOW20 for a 20% discount on your first order. So you mentioned, John, that... If we look at the petrochemical production across the U.S., but really concentrated in Louisiana and the U.S. Gulf Coast, post-IDA, we had somewhere between, you said, 14% to 44% of production shut down for various reasons, right? Related to power, people, feedstock, et cetera. So what's the effect that that has had on the market in terms of I think we've seen, I've certainly seen a number of shutdowns where people are restarting. There's still a lot of force majeure declarations that are still out there. I mean, the reality is we're only a couple of weeks past the storm hitting, much less. So we're still deep in the recovery phase. What do you see as the impacts on the markets that you guys deal with?
2: I think if I had been able to answer that question successfully, I'd be retired by now. But <laughs> um, I don't see a whole lot of relief really so to speak, from prices right now. I mean, we're seeing strong inflationary pushes. We are still able to export, although ocean freight is expensive, and we haven't yet seen a lot of imports coming in to kind of blunt the overall demand. Although just recently, in the last several days, we have seen the spot price of propylene come down quite a bit. So I think that we actually hit the kind of the inflection point or the high prices killing off demand. But a lot of that, since so much of it goes into non-wovens, which leads to PPE. So a lot of it's going to depend upon the way that the COVID pandemic plays out if we see another demand. But you watch all the football games over the weekend, not a lot of demand for masks out there right now. So I think that that is starting to actually ease back on some of the polypropylene demand. And so I think we'll start to see a little bit of easing, at least in that one chain. Some of these other product areas, like styrene, it was fairly tight to snug And so a shutdown like this will just make everything tight, at least probably through the balance of the year. So I think prices generally will see support. I'm not, ethylene will go up primarily due to it reflects the spot price and the cash cost of production. So it's going to continue to drift up as natural gas props the costs up. So I think we'll see a few cents increase in there. I think we'll see a few cents increase in propylene at least for one more month into September. But then, the forecast is we'll begin to see some easing of that. But one of the things I wanted to mention as well, and I have the note here someplace, but Gulf Coast refining operating rates fell from about 92.5% down to 75%.
1: As a result of Ida?
2: As a result of Ida. We kind of skipped over that. It went from 92.4 to 75.7. And so anything coming out of refinery is going to be tighter as well. And that's propylene. It could be benzene. So again, just another impact of a feedstock, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So one of the things, basically, just to kind of summarize, I mean, the market's tight. The market was already in many ways tight, although from what I hear, it was starting to ease and come into a better balance before we experienced hurricane Ida and now tropical storm Nicholas, which we don't know the results yet of what that's going to look like. It's been a year with a lot of volatility. There's been a lot of supply chain disruptions, et cetera. And one of the things that when I talk to folks, they say, well, how are you managing this? How are you managing the shortages, the disruption? It's around longer lead times. There's a lot of discussion around the impact of relationships and that you favor your customers that maybe you've had a long-term relationship with, have firm contracts or secured contracts with. So when we talk about disruption, in the markets is it more significant in the spot market is the spot market a good place to be or is it really also affecting the contractual customers is it changing the way people contract business
2: that's an excellent question let me answer the second part first in terms of the contractual approach i think that people are kind of revisiting issues like just-in-time inventories sole sourcing that, in fact, in a lot of the products that we're now negotiating contracts, we're sort of in the contract negotiation period right now, we're actually recommending that they use more than one supplier. Being a sole source supplier is you have a certain commitment, and there's a lot of responsibility. And we just think that for the security of your operations, and especially geographically separate them, let's say you have one supplier from the Golden Triangle or Louisiana, another from the Houston area, it would be an unusual circumstance to see both places be impacted by the same storm. And so we think some geographic flexibility, so to speak, from your supplier portfolio is probably a good thing, as well as keeping, let's say, at least a minimum of two solid suppliers that have the ability to step up. Now, because of the tightness, if you have the product, the spot market's a great place to play in. It's a bad place to be if you're buying, it was a good place to sell. But honestly, there was not a lot of spot product really available that typically a lot of your supply contracts, your purchase contracts will have a range. And so people start buying up at the upper range. And so it takes a lot of material that might be normally in a spot market out of it. So the spot market volumes have not been robust. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, makes sense. I think everybody's working to fulfill their contract obligations. It doesn't leave a lot of room for that spot market. Interesting. So, I mean, Perrin, you guys sit in the middle of a lot of transactions, right? So you're relying on the producers to produce and your customers to purchase, um, which in times like we're experiencing today with a lot of outages across the industry because of weather events, they can put the squeeze on you, I would imagine. So how do you guys approach that? How do you think about kind of just managing that? How do you think about the risk and how do you respond to that?
2: Yeah, that's a real challenge for us as a marketing company. And the value we bring is knowledge, it's experience, it's relationships, and it's options. Say, say refinery propylene will have a number of different outlets we can go to if anyone has an issue. And so we think that there's security in the offtake. And especially for some products that are byproducts, really, up, you know, let's say refinery propylene, propylene is still a byproduct. You need to make it move. And so we think we bring a lot of value in having that. But that is one product in which is a challenge as well. When you look at the price of a propylene molecule in a refinery stream at 36 or 38 cents a pound, and then you look at that same propylene molecule in a polymer grade propylene stream at 90 cents, the people make, who produce the RGP are saying,
1: how do I get a piece of that pot? Do you see some investments then coming in?
2: Not so much investments, but I think people are revisiting what they've done historically. And sometimes I understand the the attractiveness when you look at those prices, but especially in the propylene space, really there are two classes of consumers. There are consumers that can take refinery propylene and consume it directly. And those are guys that make like cumin or oligomers, propylene trimer, tetramer. A lot of the contracts are long-term based on that market price. They can't pay a lot more for that propylene molecule. But then if you have someone with a splitter who say he can buy the refinery propylene, upgrade it to polymer-grade propylene, they're the ones that can afford to pay much higher prices. And so it is kind of a balancing act between providing security of offtake and maximum return. And it could get to the point where we're going to see The folks that can afford to pay a higher price for finding propane start to really seriously buy it away from the rest of the market. And I think that that's going to be an issue as well for some of those folks. And so we're trying to navigate some of those things. And we continue to work and provide guidance and a little bit of consulting, if you want to call it that way, to some of the new projects coming on, giving advice about how to handle logistics. Let's look at your offloading sites. Do you have enough room for the trucks to turn around? you got the right connections stuff like that. So again, it's kind of the education and value that we bring as well that we're trying to utilize to uh, maintain our position. Makes sense. It's a challenge.
1: It always is. So what should we be looking for with respect to recovery? And are we going to see recovery this year? I mean, we're fast approaching the fourth quarter, um, which is in 2021 hasn't turned out the way anybody anticipated it would. Mm -hmm. And so what's our recovery in the petrochemical markets and really even just thinking specifically about U.S. Gulf Coast? Is it going to be a rocky fourth quarter? Or do you think things are going to start settling out? Again, this is with the John Steckler murky crystal ball. But what should we be watching for to understand where we are in this market?
2: Well, the single most important thing is the weather. How can we forecast what the weather is going to be that, Last year, the poor folks in Louisiana got hammered a couple of times, and that's the one thing we really can't control. So assuming we don't see any more major weather events, I think that we have a number of turnarounds scheduled for September and into October. I think they'll be back on stream. I would think that our production side would start to recover. I think that a month or two, we should see most of the production back on. Uh, Dow, Haft is going force measure because they've had damage. And I don't think they have a good assessment of what their damage is. But I think we'll begin to see those things. And I think by the end of the year, we'll get everything kind of lined out. We've got new cracker coming on, right? It made polymers. And so I think that'll add even more polymers to the business. We've got the Shell Monaca plant getting ready to start up.
1: Um, when is that? I should know the answer to that question sometimes, I think, John, but. What's the current timing for startup of that plant?
2: Let's call it second or third quarter next year. Okay. They're going to start bringing some hydrocarbons in probably in January for certain preloads and stuff. So they're making very fine progress there. So I think that that will be very interesting for for the polyethylene market because they theoretically should dominate that Northeast quadrant of polyethylene just due to their superior positioning as well as lower cost. So they should be in a very strong position, not only to take care of that whole Northeast market, but also to really put a lot of the export market.
1: Mm, interesting. And of course, that also helps with the geographic diversification out of the U.S. Gulf Coast. Right. So it helps create a bit more diversification across North America, which is, will be beneficial, we think.
2: Yeah. So it's a state tuned. We can't anticipate the black swan events that happen where there's typically those. But the U.S. producers, the Gulf Coast guys, really know what they're doing. And once they get the people back, once they get the power, they're really good at running their operations. And we build these things. If you take the Route 190 bypass around Lake Charles at the top of the the bridge, they still have light poles that are bent over at a 45-degree angle from one of the hurricanes last year. And right in line was the Lotte plant and the Westlake plant. but. You know, they really did not have a lot of damage. And so Hmm. we build a really robust hardware. So we're really limited. We're at the logistics issues are the ones that really, really, logistics issues are the ones that really determine a lot of the success and coming back in speed.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Well, this has been great, John. I appreciate you um, taking some time to talk with me and to our chemical show listeners. So. Thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Anytime. Thanks.
1: Awesome. Thanks, John.
0: Take care. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.